0: And today we're finishing the third chapter of the book of Daniel. Last week, the sermon title was Under Pressure. And we looked at Daniel 3, 1 through 18, where Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, made a golden image and ordered everybody to bow down and worship it. But three Jewish men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refused to compromise Right, And we looked at five reasons we are pressured to compromise in our own lives and three responses to the pressure. And that was don't lose heart. Don't be arrogant, but rather have humble confidence in God. And this week we're finishing chapter three, which we've already read. But before we jump in, I want you to do, another, I want you to do a mental exercise with me. Okay, And sometimes for mental exercises, people want to close their eyes. You don't have to. Whatever helps you think. And so I want us to think about our lives. And first, I want you to think about what has been easy in your life. Now I want you to think about what has been difficult in your life. Now I want you to think about how you responded to those difficult things in your life. And now think about how those difficulties and the way you responded to them have shaped you. Okay. So I shared last week about an experience I had in bold faithful prayer for a young man battling cancer. Right? And I was confident that God was going to heal him physically. But he died. It didn't happen. And if I wasn't so connected to Christ and the Word of God and the church, then likely that experience could have shaken my faith. But instead, I listened, I learned, I continued to walk with Christ, learn more about His Word, stay connected to the church, and through that, He has given me more wisdom, given me uh, more strength, and now I'm able to use that experience to help others. But I also think about my my marriage, and I've talked about this before a few, probably a few times. I think where you know the first six months of six months of our marriage were just they were very difficult, and you know it was like there was this box. It w- it was like there was a box that contained everything wrong with me in it, right? And then this new relationship just opened that box and exposed me and Leslie to it all at once. And quite literally, it was too much to handle. And we could have crumbled under that pressure. And we could have started to go down this path of making our own personal lists of, oh, this is why we should get divorced. And had we gone down that route, who knows? I know that I wouldn't be blessed with Leslie. I know that we wouldn't have Judah and Emory and Evangeli. I know that I wouldn't be here and have this church family. But instead of crumbling under that pressure, the way we responded to it was to lean into Christ, was to get help from other brothers and sisters in Christ and to let Jesus transform our hearts and our marriage. And he came through as he always does. And because of that, I have the most amazing partner in life that words can't even describe. And I have these fantastic gifts of my children, and I have this church. And so I said last week that the pressure, the tests of faith we face in life, bring good things for us and for God, but there's a caveat. That's really only the case when we respond with faithful obedience. And so the pressure can cook you or it can kill you. Hence the name of the sermon this morning, Pressure Cooked. And so I'll invite you also, uh, in your, your bulletins, there's an insert in there, a half-page insert that has an outline of the sermon. You can follow along. There's blanks in there that you'll fill out throughout the time, and there's places for you to take notes. And there's even discussion questions on the back for you to take home with you. So, Daniel chapter 3. In Daniel 3, Nebuchadnezzar, he challenged God. You think, wow, why would he do that? Well, let's not forget that Neb had defeated and captured the Israelites, right? And so he felt like he was more powerful than their God. And, and sure, the God of Israel had done this nice trick not long ago in revealing what uh, a dream that he had one night and what it meant. But that's just a parlor trick, right? He's got nothing for a fiery furnace. And so after Shadrach and Benny told Neb they wouldn't bow to his golden image, no matter what he threatened them with, he got a little upset. So upset that he told his men to heat the furnace up as hot as it would go, overheat it. And he had them tied up and thrown into the furnace. And it was so hot that the guys who threw them in burned to death. And now Neb was sitting back ready to enjoy a nice, good old-fashioned Jewish barbecue. But what happens instead? We'll go back to verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. So instead of three men bound in the fire, he sees four roaming around freely. That's an unusual sight to see. And the the text doesn't tell us specifically who the fourth person was. Some people think that it was an angel. Others think that it was Christ himself. Many believe that it could be either one. I think uh, a lot of people lean towards believing that this was an appearance by Christ. But the text itself doesn't explicitly tell us either way. And either way, he wasn't there long. Look at verses 26 and 27. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Wow. So either way, Neb called them out, and only three men walked out of the fire. The fourth was gone, just like that. And the king and all his people get to see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego completely unharmed. You know, Shadrach, and Benny had been, they were put under pressure, They responded with faithful obedience and trust in the Lord, and he delivered them unharmed. Which leads me to my first question for application. The first question that I think might come up when we read this passage, does God always deliver us unharmed? We might read this story and think that it teaches us that as long as we remain faithful and obedient, we might end up in the fire, but the fire won't touch us. Hebrews chapter 11 is often labeled the hall of faith. It's a beautiful chapter, and the author describes many famous biblical characters and their stories of amazing faith and miraculous deliverance, like Enoch, who didn't even have to die. God just took him up to be with him, or Noah, who was protected from a worldwide flood, or Abraham, who was ready to sacrifice his own son at the Lord's command, but instead the Lord intervened. And stopped it, and then proceeded to make a covenant with him, promising to bless him with land and family beyond measure. The author speaks of Moses, who led the Israelites out of Egypt, where God parted the sea so that they could walk across on dry land and not be touched by the water, the water which God then used to drown and kill the Egyptian army. And then there's Hebrews eleven, thirty-two through thirty-five. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who, through faith, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of a sword, were made strong out of weakness became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. We can read Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, David and Goliath, the stories of all these people, Hebrews chapter 11 up to this point, and think that faithful obedience means that we will walk in power untouched by the forces of evil. We start to think that God will deliver us unharmed through the fires of life. But then there's the next three and a half verses. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered, mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. It's about these that he says the world was not worthy. I... I really appreciate what Rodney Storts had to say about this passage. He said, That last sentence says of these men and women who by faith believed in God's love and care even though they were not delivered miraculously. The world was not worthy of them. These are the special people in God's Hall of Fame. We make stars out of those with seemingly miraculous cures. They're the ones we interview. Theirs are the books we read. They're the ones sought out as special speakers at conferences. They're the ones we put in our Hall of Fame, but the Lord's Hall of Fame is made up of those special people who maintain a trust in God's sovereign plan through the darkest times and the deepest valleys. They are the ones who are not delivered except by death. So does God always deliver us unharmed? No. But does God always deliver us? That's an emphatic yes. David Helm pointed out that fire in the Bible is associated with one of two things. Judgment and refinement. God delivered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from this fire, but he didn't deliver all his faithful followers from the fires they faced on earth. But that doesn't mean he didn't come through. You see, what Shackrack and Benny and the other people mentioned in Hebrews 11 understood was that there is a better deliverance. An eternal, heavenly deliverance. They understood that there's only one fire that we must avoid. And that's the fire of judgment reserved for God's enemies. And if you have truly believed in Christ... Repented, turned away from your sins and put your trust, your faith in what he did for you on the cross. Accepting him as your savior and your Lord, choosing to follow him. Then you will not face the fire of judgment. But you very well might face the fire of refinement. In fact, you should expect it. Look at you got to appreciate verse 12, right? I mean, when we go through tests of our faith, we act like something strange is happening, don't we? We're like, God, why is this happening? Haven't I been faithful? And I think sometimes God is like, we're about to find out. That's what a test is for, isn't it? I mean, that's the point. How can you know if you have something unless you test it? Like I said last week, faith is really just a fantasy until it's tested. Otherwise, it's just like we have faith in our faith. Right? Somebody says, do you have faith? Well, I have faith that I have faith. You know, but the test is good. It gives us a chance to share in Christ's experiences. And when we respond well, God is glorified, just like he was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. You see, if these men hadn't been pressure tested, the opportunity to display God's power wouldn't have happened. If it wasn't for the fiery furnace, if it wasn't for their refusal to compromise, then King Nebuchadnezzar would have went on thinking that their God wasn't anything special. But instead, he got to see firsthand just how special he was. And then Neb turns around and makes a decree to the whole nation just how special their God is. Now, now, Danny Aiken does well to point out that conviction does not equal conversion. We see that Neb was convicted. We see that he no longer wanted to challenge the God of Israel. He recognized how powerful he was. But what we didn't see in his life was a humble submission to worship and serve God alone, it seems more like he just added this God, the real God, to his approved list. But nonetheless, God's name and power were magnified and glorified because of that fire. And it seems so often that this is the way God works. We have reason to believe that the church prospers during difficulty. When we are no longer allowed to practice an easy, comfortable, casual faith, but instead are forced to practice a difficult, life-changing, never-giving-up, tested kind of faith. It happened in the early church, when Rome tried to snuff out the light of Christianity, but instead it just kept growing it happened with the Israelites whenever they were put in, in slavery in Egypt, but in, and they just continued to multiply. It's happening in the church today in Iran and China. Now, does this mean that the church always thrives under persecution? Well, I think we need to think about that because there's a couple things that we need to think about. And first of all, we need to remember what it means to thrive. Mark Cortez pointed out what I hope that we all understand anyway, that numerical growth doesn't automatically equal a thriving church. The prosperity gospel has swept across the globe, but I don't consider that prosperous. <laughs> and we also, uh, there have been times in church history where it seems like persecution hurt the church, but I think that has a lot to do with how the church responded. Now some people... Uh, Like John Allen of the National Catholic Reporter, he tries to make an argument that persecution is usually not good for the church. Here's what he says. What is most heartbreaking is that we only hear the stories of miraculous conversions, but don't hear how the majority of new Christians who face either intense pressure or isolation from their communities, in fact, give up on their Christian faith eventually. And even in the West, while we see some Christians who go through suffering grow and find blessings in their situation, others go under and give up on God or church altogether. Well, I think what he has right is that not everyone who professes to follow Christ ends up bringing glory to God through the fire. But I also think there's a major flaw in his argument because genuine believers with real faith don't just abandon their faith. They don't give up on God or church altogether. No, what happens is when false converts get tested, the test comes back false. And so it's not the persecution that's the problem, it's the response. So if the government or our schools or our employers say, hey, be quiet or else, and the church responds with being quiet, then the church is going to suffer. Or if a a nation says no more Christian missionaries and no more church meetings and the church responds with not sending any missionaries and and the churches stop meeting together, then the church will suffer. But if the government or schools or employers start saying, hey, be quiet or else, and we respond with proclaiming the gospel and making disciples, and they respond with more pressure and more persecution, and we respond with more gospel proclaiming and disciple-making, then I believe wholeheartedly that the church will thrive. Maybe not in the numerical sense that we sometimes crave. But we have to remember that the church does not thrive by growing with false conversions and comfortable, casual faith. It prospers when we grow from real conversions and genuine, tested faith. You see, this church... Prospers during difficulty when we respond with faithful obedience. And I want to show you a very brief clip of one of our brothers in Christ. He's not from our nation, not from our culture. I'm not gonna go into details about his life, but let's just say he's been through some stuff. His faith has been tested. He's suffered some persecution. And here's what he has to say to us. For Christians in the West, I wish you persecution. Then you will know sweetness of Christ. You may think that I'm cruel, but I'm not. I wish you the best. And the best always comes from Christ. Out of Christ is only death. In Christ is life. I find that clip fascinating and ironic. Because we have brothers and sisters in Christ and other parts of the world praying and wishing for our faith to be tested. And we're over here praying and wishing that it wouldn't. And so somebody's praying and wishing for the wrong thing. And we have to ask ourselves, is it him or is it us? And to be honest, I don't completely know. It may be a bit of both. I won't know completely until i get to ask god in person i do know that we often spend more time and effort fighting for the freedom to proclaim the gospel than we do proclaiming it we often spend more money and time fighting for the freedom to do ministry than just doing ministry what good are our freedoms if they're not exercised we're like the teenager who fought with her parents and fought and fought and fought to let her go surfing And eventually, they finally caved and said, fine, you can go. And she watched Jaws and said, I'm not interested anymore. (laughs) It's kind of like the American church, though, right? We fight and fight and fight for freedoms that we're afraid to use. And the more I study Scripture, the more I believe that facing persecution and tests of faith, or, or not facing those things, is unusual and strange for a follower of Christ which causes me to look at my own life and wonder why has it been so easy for me I don't get it God where's my fire where's my persecution and to be honest I don't know but in the back of my heart and the back of my mind I'm preparing for it And if I get to the end of my life and it never came, then I'll just have to ask Jesus why. But what I know is that I want whatever will bring him the most glory, right? And so if, that, if what will bring him the most glory is me you know, serving the church and making disciples along the way and proclaiming the gospel freely, living a long, healthy life, then that's what I want. But if what will bring Christ the most glory is me ending up in prison... Or losing my spouse or my child, or them losing me, or me becoming paralyzed, or any other combination of anything that I can think of, then that's what I want. And I can be prepared for it because I know that I'll never escape God's love. And now I'm gonna share a story that Rodney Stortz got from Brian Chappelle. And I'm going to tell this story, but I want you, what I want you to do is just listen and to watch the screens. And it's a good thing I practiced this because when I was practicing this yesterday, I had to take a time out for some extended crying because it's, it's, a bit of a, it's a bit of a heartbreaker. So he tells the story of a Christian miner who was injured at a young age and became an invalid, who spent his time watching through a window from his bed as life passed him by. He watched as men his own age prospered, raised families, and had grandchildren. As he watched, his body withered, his house crumbled, and his life wasted away. One day, when the bedridden miner was quite old, a younger man came to visit him. I hear that you believe in God and claim that he loves you. How can you believe such things after all this happened to you? Don't you sometimes doubt God's love? The old man hesitated and then smiled. Yes, it's true. Sometimes Satan comes calling on me in this fallen down house of mine. He sits right there by my bed where you are sitting now. He points out my window to the men I once worked with who are still strong and active. And he asks, does Jesus love you? And then Satan casts a, glaring, a jeering glance around my tattered room as he points to the fine homes and my friends across the streets and asks again, does Jesus love you? Then at last Satan points to the grandchild of a friend of mine, a man who has everything I do not. And Satan waits for the tear in my eye before he whispers in my ear, does Jesus really love you? And what do you say when Satan speaks to you that way, asked the young man. The old miner said, I take Satan by the hand, I lead him in my mind to a hill far away called Calvary. And There I point to the thorn-tortured brow, to the nail-pierced hands, and feet, into the spear-wounded side. And then I say, Satan, you tell me, doesn't Jesus love me? He does love us. And it's his love that carries us through the pressure, through the fire. But maybe you've already compromised. Maybe you've already responded poorly to the pressure. What should you do? Repent and set your eyes on Christ. His love will never fail you. Forget the past and focus on what's ahead. Or maybe you're in the middle of the fire right now and you're feeling the heat. What should you do? Remember, don't lose heart. Don't be arrogant, but instead have humble confidence in God. And link arms with your brothers and sisters in Christ and we will walk through it, with you. Or maybe you're wondering if, when the pressure is coming your way, what should you do? Well, remember that the pressure can cook you or it can kill you. And so you may, be you may be tempted to avoid the pressure, and maybe for good reason. You might be afraid that you're not ready for it, that it will kill you, and you might be right. And to that I say, Get ready. Get prepared now while the, fire, while the heat is low, but don't live a life trying to avoid the pressure. Danny Aiken pointed out a quote from Charles Spurgeon. He said, Beloved, you must go into the furnace if you would have the nearest and dearest dealings with Christ Jesus. I want to read that again. Think about what he's saying here. Beloved, you must go into the furnace if you would have the nearest and dearest dealings with Christ Jesus. And then I want us to listen again to the words from our brother in Christ. For Christians in the West, I wish you persecution. Then you will know sweetness of Christ. You may th- think that I'm cruel, but I'm not. I wish you the best. And the best always comes from Christ. Out of Christ is only death. In Christ is life. Let's pray. God. Every one of us is either has either gone through the fire is in the middle of it, or is waiting for it. Help us to take the steps that we need to so that we can respond with faithful obedience and bring glory to your name. And we pray that no one here would face the fire of judgment And if there's anyone here that knows that that's the fire that's awaiting them because they don't know Christ, then we pray that they would wait no longer and repent and put their faith in what he did for us on the cross. We pray that you would give us wisdom to know what to ask for. We have brothers and sisters who are asking for our protests for us, we just ask that you would continue to be the sovereign, perfect God who never gets it wrong, and that you would help us to all seek wisdom in knowing what is best for your name and for your glory. and when Satan and his followers come along trying to make us doubt and question Christ's love, that we would lead them to the cross. And it's in our Savior's precious holy name that we ask these things. Amen.